Welcome to the First NAS Podcast. This week, Pastor Paul and Pastor Ryan joined together to talk about a difficult section of scripture in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy regarding women in ministry and leadership roles. Let's listen in as they share. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Pastor Ryan's going to join me today. He's uh, got the got the green light to interrupt anytime he wants with comments or questions, just like all of you always have wanted. So uh, you can text him if you need. Uh, this morning I'm in First Timothy chapter two, kind of a challenging, a challenging chapter for us to look at, and so I want to I want to get right to it. But I do want to just mention a couple of quick. Uh, reminders week in and week out. Uh, we're doing Wednesday night family nights these days, uh, and so I wanted to remind folks we continue through with adults the book, The Seven Deadly Spirits, looking at the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and so I invite you to be a part of that. On Wednesday evenings, we start with a meal at 545, and uh, it's a free meal, programming for all ages on Wednesdays. And then I also wanted to repeat an announcement I made last week for the first time, which is uh, we are looking toward doing an international working witness trip next summer, summer 2024. We're going to Africa. We've, we've narrowed it down to a continent and kind of a part of a continent. That's, that's a big continent. It's a big continent, though. And so we need to know who might be interested in going so we can start putting together plans in Africa that fit with the team that we think might go. So obviously, we don't have a lot of information just yet. We haven't chosen, settled on dates, and we, haven't, we don't have a budget yet. But if it's something that you might be interested in being a part of, would you just let me know or let Roberta Carr know? Uh, we're, we're trying to kind of collect information. Roberta told me that she had a handful of people talk to her last, last week. And so please continue to, to let us know if that is something that might be in your future next summer. I have been preaching through the book of 1 Timothy for a few weeks now, and this is, this is a book, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of his most trusted disciples, Timothy, and we, we, we've started through the first chapter, we're through the first chapter, and I've cleaned all of the bits and pieces that I was missing in the first chapter up last week, and now we're ready to move on to chapter two, and I'm going to take all of chapter two in one felled swoop. And so last, a couple of weeks ago, when we were looking at chapter two, we looked at a couple of things that just remind us uh, that about the background here. We, we learned that this letter was written to Timothy when he was in Ephesus. Ephesus was a church where there was a strong Christian presence in the first century. Paul, the apostle Paul, during his missionary travels, he, he planted the church in Ephesus and then over the course of his lifetime, he supported the church of Ephesus by appointing leaders. Uh, there was a married couple of Priscilla and Aquila that he left in charge at first, and then we know that he left Timothy in charge there at one point. And then he also wrote letters. We have a, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus that's recorded earlier in the New Testament, and then Paul wrote this letter to Timothy while he was in Ephesus, and it's possible that there was other correspondence that we just don't have preserved for us now uh, that Paul wrote to, to Ephesus. 
Now, despite all that support that Paul had given to the church in Ephesus, in the first century, problems cropped up. There were, there were trouble, uh, troubles in the, in the early church. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started to look at what some of those troubles might have looked like. And, and Paul talks about how they struggled with what he called endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees, uh, which sounds kind of weird. We don't do that anymore, right? We never talk about myths and spiritual pedigrees, do we? Uh, he talks about meaningless speculations, which don't help it, people live a life of faith in God. And, and he talks about how things actually got so bad in Ephesus that one time when he was there, he kicked two men out of the church. Uh, They're Hymenaeus and Alexander that, that Paul said, these two guys are no longer to be seen as members of the body. They're to be seen as non-believers. That doesn't mean the church doesn't continue to love them and try to call them into a relationship, but it means that they are, they are no longer part of the, the, the body until they repent and, and say, yeah, we, we were out of line. And so Paul, Paul has been going over all of, all of this and uh, kind of giving us some introductory information and after all that, all that introductory information, Paul begins in chapter 2 to deal head-on with some of the issues that were cropping up in Ephesus. And so uh, Ephesus 2 and 3 and on, these are chapters that Paul is, is dealing specifically with the, the problems that were present in Ephesus when he was writing. He's, he is writing to this situation. And so we're going to... We're going to read chapter 2. We're going to read all of, of Ephesians chapter 2, or no. First Timothy chapter Thank two. you. We're going to read all of First Timothy chapter 2, uh, and, and we're going to remember as we're reading that Paul's not writing in a vacuum, right? We, we need to remember that Paul is writing at a specific period in time to a specific church, and Paul had history with this church. Paul knows what's going on in this church. Paul had baggage with this church. And there are good things and there are bad things that Paul is addressing that are below the surface. So we're going to read, and we're going to try to read at face value as best as we can. But we got to remember, as we read these next few chapters, we got to remember there is more than meets the eye as we read these verses. So Ryan, would you read for us uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 15? Uh, I would love to. If you just follow along, either on the screen or your own Bible, uh, we'll be reading out of the NLT today. And it says this, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time, and I have been chosen as a preacher and an apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. 
In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Wow. <laughs> okay. Are we ready? There, there are, uh, well, you know, we might be here for a while. Uh, um, there, there are two very clear sections in this chapter, and I'm going to deal with both, I'm going to divide and conquer. It, it was important that we re read the first section before I deal with the second section, but I'm going to deal with the second section first because it's where the controversy is. And there, there, over this passage, there has been a lot of heat and smoke, and we're looking for light. And so we're, we're going to try to find some light out of the heat and smoke that could come from a passage that appears to subordinate women and appears to say kind of not what we say as the Church of the Nazarene, that women should, appears to say women shouldn't teach in the church, could be, could be uh, construed that way. So I'm going to take the, the, the reverse order and I'm just backing up one more time, all of the New Testament letters need to be read in context. They need to be read understanding that there's way more behind the scenes happening than we have access to. There, there is some stuff happening in, in Ephesus at the time that Timothy is leading the church. We just don't know all that was going on, and, and we need to hold lightly to, to our understanding. At the same time, we want to, as often as possible, read scripture at face value. We want to read scripture trying to, to give, understand that the church has considered this inspired and has preserved this for our good. And so we want to read at face value as, as, as much as we can. Uh, and so how, how do we do that? Uh, we're, the, the first seven verses here, again, uh, address the, the universal nature of God's plan of salvation. Uh, the first seven verses here, Paul tells, tells the church to pray for all people everywhere. And, and the, the inclusive language, the everywhere, all people, it's repeated a handful of times in those first seven verses. Paul wants to get across the idea that God's plan of salvation through Jesus is for all people. And, and so he, he gets that, that point across uh, and, and we get to verse 8, and Paul begins to address what I think are some very specific issues that were right there in the church in Ephesus. And he begins by, by separating the genders and giving some, some gender-specific instructions. The first instruction is, everywhere there's worship happening, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted high, free from anger and controversy. I look at this, and I just, even the division of the genders, we're, we're looking at the context of what Paul is writing to Timothy about, and 
and kind of making some assumptions that Timothy has written to Paul and talking about specific things that are happening in the church. And uh, I, I like this uh, chapter or this, this verse here that we're starting off with uh, because it comes right down to the heart of worship, and that's inclusive of everyone. But I, I look at this and I say, you know, Paul's dealing with some men who, I don't know about you, but I know men to be competitive in nature, and uh, it, even in church things, uh, even if it's like church softball or, or something like that. Um, but I'm drawn, you know, thinking about other scriptures in the, in the New Testament that talk to us about, man, if we have something uh, that we're, we have against a brother, we ought to lay our offering down first. We go to that brother, we work that out, then we come back and open, openly offer to God our worship, openly offer our prayer, because we now have nothing between us and him. And, and so I could, I could see here, there, there's probably something going on within the church where some men are struggling. Maybe they've got a controversy between who wants to be leader and who's got power in the church or not, whatever. We, we don't have all of those readings, but you can kind of read into it and say, some of this stuff obviously happens in the church today. It had to have been happening in the church then because they're human. Right. So I look at that and say, this is, is a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, part of me just struggles with the separating of the genders when we're talking about these things. But at the same time, we know at this point in history, genders were separate of, uh, in this way too. So Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when, when I think about a passage of scripture that dictates a posture of worship, uh, you know, Paul, Paul says, I want men, every, everywhere the worship is happening, I want men to worship with their hands lifted high, holy hands lifted high. And, and again, we read scripture, we read all of scripture together. We don't just like, if, if you wanted to take this passage and make a rule for all of the church everywhere, it would mean every church, every, like our shoulders, men, we would get, we'd have good looking buff shoulders because you, your hands get tired when you lift them high and pray, Right. And so the, this, this the, sounds like Paul is dictating to the church the posture with which you should worship. But again, we read all of Scripture together and, and in context. Re remember what Jesus said about the posture you take when you pray? Jesus said, when you pray, go into a dark closet and close the door behind you so nobody sees that you're praying. Jesus tells a story about two prayers in public. One was praying with his hands lifted high, making a big scene out of how he was praying, saying, how, how, God, I'm grateful I'm not like this poor sinner next to me. The poor sinner was there curled up, beating his breast. Sorry, <laughs> that was bad pointing. The poor sinner was there <laughs> beating his breast. Well, you're going to be the hero. I am a sinner saved by grace. You're going to be I the mean... hero. So the poor sinner is sitting there beating his breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus says, of the two men, one of them went away justified. The man who had, had taken this posture beating his breast, pleading for mercy from God. And so it doesn't seem like Jesus, at least, is particularly concerned with men raising holy hands every time they pray. It seems like maybe, maybe Paul had something, like you're saying, that he was addressing in the background here. It, what Paul and Jesus agree on is the attitude with which we come to pray. As, as you mentioned, Jesus says, if you're going to worship, which includes prayer, and you remember that, you have, that your brother has ought against you in the King James, 
<laughs> if you remember that your brother has ought against you, if you, rem- if you have something against your brother, go and be reconciled to your brother before you, or sister, before you, before you continue in worship. And so when, when we try to draw like a universal principle from this one little, one little snippet, maybe we re- need to remember the broader context of Scripture. And this, this interpretation is going to be helpful for us. This idea of reading in a broader, broader context is going to help us as we move forward, right? And so Paul, Paul talks about, um, you know, be reconciled. We, he's talked about the controversy that's present in the church. He says, men, don't, don't, be, don't be contentious. Don't be angry with one another as you're, as you're praying. Reconcile and, and pray and worship together. And then he turns his attention to women. He turns his attention to women, and uh, he, he start, he, he's connecting the two with, I think Paul is continuing in the context of worship. Verse 10 begins with an and, and I, I think that and is connecting us back to, to verse, uh, sorry, verse 9 begins with the word and. He, I think he's connecting us back to verse 8 that started with, in every place, uh, where Christians gather to worship in, in all, all places. So in, in verse 9, uh, he says, And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Now, I'm just going to admit, as a man, I feel very uncomfortable talking about this passage. I, I have no interest in talking to women about their clothing. I just, I have none. <sighs> I, I, I feel the same way. Even though, <laughs> even though every Sunday my wife asks me, how do I look? Um, well, uh, it is, uh, to have us up here as two guys talking about this is, is interesting at best, right? But I agree with you. I love that the and, and we got to focus in on the and, that this is maybe more about the posture of worship that's happening in that, in that specific church with these specific people, things going on in that worship that right. need to be addressed. Right, and, and, and talking to women there's no permission or or taking away of permission for women to be active participants in worship in this. Like, take note. It doesn't say anywhere, and men are the only ones who are to be praying. Women are explicitly, are implicitly expected to be active participants in worship. There is nowhere in Scripture where women are prohibited from praying publicly in the church. In fact, Paul talks about women praying, talks about prayer in the church in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. His, his assumption is that women are praying out loud publicly in the church when he writes about it. So Paul, Paul is not saying women need to dress modestly and keep their yaps shut. He, he's saying women, and, and so he talks about, sorry. Careful there. He didn't say that. He didn't say he that. He did not say that. Not. Paul, Paul mentions modesty and decency, which, which are explicit values of Roman society in the first century. Explicit, like there, there are 
uh, fragments of writings that we found from the first century that talk about how women protect the honor of their husbands by being modest and, and, uh, and decent in public. In the first century in the Roman Empire, in the city of Ephesus, though, we also know that women were pushing the boundaries of the cultural norms and expectations for women. And so women in, in Ephesus were, were not showing as much concern uh, for, or there was a movement within, within Ephesus of women not showing as much concern for modesty and decency the way that had been sort of traditional, you know, traditional Roman values. And uh, so there, there's a change taking place in, in the context that Paul was writing to. But the specifics that Paul mentions, the specifics that he mentions are hairdos, uh, about the way you do your hair, about gold and pearls, and about expensive clothing. All, all three of these things would be, would be very clear cultural markers uh, of a way that a person could express wealth. Wealthy women had servants and leisure to get their hair done. Wealthy women could afford pearls and gold. Wealthy women could afford expensive clothing. Paul is not the only author that addressed this issue in Scripture. In, in Peter's writings, we read about women who were wearing expensive clothing to draw attention to themselves in worship. They were creating a hierarchy within the church between the rich and the poor, which also happens in Corinth. Paul is saying, let's, let's lower the bar. Let's not draw attention to ourselves and our particularly our wealth when we gather to worship. And so when we, we get to verse 10 then, Paul, uh, let's see. Paul is talking about the way that we should reflect our faith. Women reflect their faith uh, it, by the way that they behave. You know, we, don't, we don't put on an expensive outfit as a means of saying, look at me, God has blessed me, right? We don't, we don't wear, wear things that are outward displays of, of wealth in order to gain attention to ourselves. Now, in our culture, this doesn't only apply to women. In our culture, men and women alike, we have brands that we can wear that are like obvious displays of wealth, uh, we have, you know, trinkets that we can wear that are obvious displays of wealth. I think Paul's instruction, if we were to bring it to our culture, I think if Paul were to speak to, to us, he would say, don't come to church trying to turn heads. Don't come to church trying to draw attention to, to the fact that you're doing all right financially. Paul would say, it's, it's, not, it's not the purpose of being there. It's not the purpose of, of gathering to worship. Yeah, I, you, we have talked a lot uh, in the church in recent years about uh, somewhat, we call them worship wars, uh, church members disagreeing about the best way to worship, whether it's music, you know, or any of those things. And we can see here uh, within the context that it, it's, it's something that's just innate in humanity to, to bring something into the worship service that doesn't belong. Uh, and to refocus us that when we go to a worship service, everything in its entirety is to be about God and Jesus. Uh, we ought not to distract other people uh, by how we dress or how we act or whatever, but we ought to help emphasize the focus on Jesus, and we ought to emphasize. So it's another way for me as a, a longtime worship leader 
um, and being in those discussions about music or dress or, you know, what, what's included in worship, what shouldn't be included in worship, to look back at this and say, this isn't, it isn't a men versus women part of this story that Paul is writing. It's that and that ties it all together yeah. and brings it back to this is where where our hearts addressing specific issues with the, within this church that we can also correlate with and say, hey, we've had those issues before too. Mm -hmm. uh, to address also the interpretation that I think this passage gets used as a weapon against women being beautiful at times. And, and I would just say... Uh, it's, it's not explicit in this, in this passage, uh, but don't be distracted by other people when you come to church either. <laughs> don't go to church looking to be a distraction, looking to draw attention to yourself, but uh, don't go to church looking to be distracted, looking... It's a two-way street. Yeah, to, for, for men to let your eyes wander, like you are worshiping with your sisters in Christ. Love them and treat them as your sisters in Christ. Uh, and, and, you know, I, again, I'm a man and I don't want to speak out of turn, but I know that women can feel the pressure from other women to dress a certain way and to look a certain way. And, and to all the church, don't be distracted by your brother or your sister and the way that they are dressed and the way they are not dressed. One other thing that just just because we're Nazarenes and we're here and we're gonna, I'm going to just say it, the, the, the Bible never, never does the New Testament judge or ridicule or limit poor people for the way that they dress. When the poor are among us, they are accepted. When, when the wealthy come to church, they are accept, expected to accommodate the poor. In our context, that means if, if folks are, are a part of us who can't, because of their living situation, shower every day or laundry is difficult, we, we don't let that be a distraction either in our worship. Uh, so that's a soapbox. That's, we better get back because Paul's got more... <laughs> controversy for us. <laughs> it only gets better from here. It only gets better. So now to address verses 11 through 15, this paragraph, it, this may seem like a direct challenge to, to us. In the Church of the Nazarene, we ordain women. We, we unapologetically believe that women can serve as pastors of local churches. We unapologetically believe that women belong in the highest levels of our leadership. We have women, we have had two women as of now, serve as general superintendents in the Church of the Nazarene. We currently have a woman serving as a general superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene. We, we believe in that God calls women into ministry. And so this passage, it may seem like, boy, a real gotcha for a denomination like ours, where we believe that this is, is how God has gifted uh, women within the church. So let's, let's look at it. Uh, I'll read it. I made you read it once. I'll, I'll read. <laughs> uh, women should learn, verse, verse 11, women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Verse 13, for God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. 
And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Okay, verse 11 is a direct appeal for women to learn. Women should learn. Those are the first three words. Women should learn. Christianity gets a bad rap for being, you know, nailing the patriarchy down. I'd challenge you. I would just challenge you to find another religious text, 2,000-year-old religious text, encouraging women to learn. Uh, women were not welcomed as learners in the first century. This is radical in the first century. Paul is saying women should learn. This is a dramatic reversal from Paul's Judaism of his youth that did not allow women to study the scripture, did not allow women to memorize the, the Torah the way men were, were expected to. Women should learn. They should learn quietly and submissively. Every learner in the church in the first century was told to learn quietly and submissively. When Paul talks about the relationship between teachers and learners, it is always one of respect and submission. The book of James, the book of Hebrews, again, learners learn quietly and submissively. All learners, men and women alike. Verse 11 is a direct appeal to women to learn. This is 2,000 years old, women being told you belong as full learners in the church. Did I make yeah, this point clear? I, I think you made the point. I think, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, we have a lot of men and women who, instead of highlighting women should learn, they highlight be quietly and submissively. Uh, and it's great to bring it out, uh, the recognition that at this point, whether it was uh, the women that traveled with Jesus and the disciples or uh, here after Jesus is already now gone, uh, but within the church, that women are encouraged to be a part of it. They're encouraged to pray openly in public. Um, it's another, that backdrop is another thing that adds to what you're saying here of women should learn. Uh, women are included Yes. And if we can read it in context with all the other ones, that we're all supposed to be respectful of the people who are teaching us, uh, not to distract them, not to overwhelm them, you know. Thank you. Yes. So then verse 12, I do not allow women to, a woman to teach a man. Uh, Paul is saying, I. This isn't a universal uh, principle for the church always. I do not allow a woman to teach. Not a universal principle for the, for the church always. Oh, and then, by the way, this is not Paul's stance in every circumstance in Scripture. It, Philippians 4, verses uh, 4, or 3 and 4. No, Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. It talks about this controversy between two women in the church in Philippi. Paul says, I really want you to help these women 
reconcile. Why does Paul say that he really wants these women to reconcile? Because they have shown their mettle as teachers of the gospel. So Paul, Paul's instruction here is, is not his, his always everywhere. This has not been his, his policy throughout his ministry. Right, and you, you mentioned it earlier at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, when he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in charge of the church in Ephesus, a husband-wife uh, co-leading, unheard of in the first century church, but a husband and wife co-leading. It's pretty rare now that you see a husband and wife. We, we have some. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had a, on our district a couple of uh, spousal pairs, uh, preaching, teaching, doing it co-leading. But again, outside of the, these specific verses, it's so helpful to know those things that this is not Paul's stance, mm -hmm. you know, cut and dried, this is the law. Uh, and I, too, love the fact that he's saying, he's clarifying, I don't allow uh, this to happen. We know other situations in Corinth uh, where there's a, other addressing of women who had been distracting or whatever, specific time, specific place, specific church, and maybe as a leader, I mean, I, I like to think this way, Paul had had some uh, bad blood, so to speak, with some, whether they were leaders or just learners who were just out of hand, and he is maybe telling Timothy, I'm kind of making this kind of a practice, not maybe every case scenario, but for me right now, I've already dealt with this a number of times, mm -hmm. uh, so be careful yeah. about it, and be it, but be bold to address it as well. Right. Yeah, so, so he does say in verse 12 to the church in, or to Timothy, is the leader of the church in Ephesus, I don't let women, women teach. So why would he say that in this specific instance if that's not his policy on every occasion? And I think that's a valid question, and I think it, it goes back to Paul was dealing with some specific distractions within the church, some specific issues that were happening. Humans. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was just the, the human problem but you know he addresses men don't don't pray with anger and contention in your heart women don't be a distraction by what you wear and the way you do your hair i i don't think this is a season in which women should not be teaching in the church for for whatever reasons i again i'm guessing specific issue that paul is dealing with in ephesus when we fast forward we'll look in chapter five in the book of uh, uh first timothy that paul <coughs> deals with widows who are stirring up controversy. And, and so there, there are some specific issues <laughs> of women, uh, widows stirring up controversy that Paul wants to, wants to try to help the church navigate through. And so maybe that's one of the specific reasons that Paul writes this. Um, but again, he, he ends then with he ends verse 12 with, let women, let them listen quietly. Let them listen. Again, let them listen. Other religions of the time were not letting women listen to teaching. This is, this is open door. Women need to hear good teaching. Christian women need to understand their faith and be able to articulate their faith. This is important stuff for Paul. And, and the logic that, that Paul draws from then in the next couple of verses uh, that, you know, Eve was created second, Adam was created first, and then that 
Eve was the one who was tempted by Satan and, and well, Adam wasn't tempted by Satan. He, he's drawing from Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and the, that early creation narrative and the, the narrative of the fall. And when, I, I, I would say when Paul interprets Genesis 2 and 3 that way, he is drawing from the Jewish interpretation that he was given as, as a boy and as he developed and understood the, the early New Testament. The Jewish interpretation of Genesis 3, especially during Paul's day, put a lot of blame on Eve. Put a lot of blame on Eve. It was an interpretation that just like, oh yeah, Eve is, she, she was tricked and then she, you know, essentially tricked Adam, coerced Adam into eating the apple. Our culture in the church today, you would be hard-pressed to find a, a, a contemporary, a modern biblical commentary that puts that much blame on Eve. You would be hard-pressed to find anybody who would interpret the fall narrative of Genesis 3 without recognizing when, when Eve offers the fruit to Adam, she, she gives it to Adam because he's right there as Eve is having the conversation with the tempter. And, and you'd be hard-pressed to, in our culture, to find an interpretation of Genesis 3 that didn't say Adam is, is at best a silent observer to, to someone being tempted to sin. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe even he's complicit, right? He's, he's right there. Adam knows as well as Eve, better than Eve, theoretically, the prohibition against eating the fruit in the, from the tree in the center of the garden. Our interpretation of, of this passage, the, the, the interpretation that, that many of us kind of hold to these days, puts Adam and Eve really receiving the blame for that first sin fairly equally, right? And so if that's Paul's, Paul's interpretation that he's heard all his life, places so much blame on Eve. Today, we... We don't place that much blame on Eve. Go ahead. I got some really good teaching when I was first married uh, early on uh, from a pastor who uh, shared at a marriage enrichment conference uh, this passage from this, uh, addressing this in our, our marital relationships because a lot of husbands can, as you said uh, before, uh, a little out of context for me, pulling it out from you, uh, that we can use this as weapon against people. Sometimes we can use it against our own spouse. And uh, the teaching I got is, if not equal in blame, because they're both right there, they're both making the decision, uh, that really ultimately it was Adam's decision because he was given the responsibility of leading Eve. Uh, and if we look at uh, Ephesians that tells us, wives submit to your husbands, but then so short verses later says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We, we sacrifice ourselves for our wives, that they would be elevated 
that they would be held blameless, spotless. And Adam did not do this. Uh, he didn't tell Eve, we're not going to do that. We were told not to do it. We're not going to do it. Uh, so for me, you know, all throughout my adult life, I've really wrestled with this scripture um, because I see the blame should have been on Adam. He should have led his wife. It was his responsibility to keep her blameless before God. Um, and he didn't. He failed. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is equal, equal sin. They both sinned. Um, but that has just brought a lot of, in my earlier years, especially struggle with this passage of Scripture, uh, blaming and then holding, you know, almost women subservient uh, because of it, um, or really wrestling with that. And uh, that's just, that's not Paul's opinion, that's my opinion. So if you all, you know, want to talk to me after the service about whatever, however I believe, uh, that's fine. I'm willing to talk with all of you. Uh, but I, I look at it that way and say, um, with what we're told out in other places in Scripture that Paul has also written, mm -hmm. uh, how we're supposed to uh, submit to each other in our re marriage relationship, the roles that we've been given and the responsibilities that God has given us in those roles uh, really makes it a different story yeah. in this chapter. Yeah. So understanding Paul's background and, and the context from which he's coming, it makes me wonder if Paul knew that he was writing to a culture where women have the opportunity to, to learn, where women are given equal footing in, in, the, in education. And if Paul was writing to a culture where women have proven themselves as capable leaders among men, and if he were writing to, to a culture where, where we see men as responsible for their own decisions, even when a woman tells them to do the wrong thing, you have to wonder what Paul would write to that culture. I think Paul would write to women who, who sense that God has called them to, to preach. I think Paul's instructions to women in, in our culture would be pray for all people and preach boldly the word of God. I, I really believe that if, if Paul were, were given that cultural background, that's, that's the, where he would come from. As a church, we, we've fallen in line with, with this idea of women being capable as preachers and teachers it, for, for centuries now. We, we trace our roots back to the Wesleyan movement. In the 1700s, John Wesley said, it can't be that God was withholding the grace of leadership from women for all these years. It can't be, and it, and it, it has to be that when I see women capable and, and good, educated preachers of the gospel, it has to be that God could use these women. And so Wesley himself sent women out to preach and, uh, and teach. And so from, from the 1700s, people in our movement have been, have been seeing it this way and for, for the better, I think. But we can't skip verse 15. <laughs> just it just gets you, better. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better. Uh, women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. I think we can all agree that even for those who have not had the joy of bearing children, Christ still justifies. <laughs> Thank you, right? Yes. <laughs> It kind of, I don't know, it's just weird reading yeah. that, you know? 
Yeah, so you remember he's just gotten done talking about the story of the fall, Genesis chapter 3. One of the, the punishment for the woman on the heels of the fall is pain and childbearing. I, my guess, my, my, my best guess is that Paul is making some, and maybe there was a known teaching in the early church that made some connection between the pain of childbearing, like there would be delivery from the pain of childbearing, um, which I, I've known righteous women who have told me that there still is pain in <laughs> childbearing. But there, so maybe there would be some, some delivery. The, the thing that we, we know Paul can't be saying because of the rest of the context of this passage, let alone all of scripture, the thing that Paul cannot be saying is that women women's uh, eternal salvation is based on their ability to have children. That, that, that simply would fly in the face of the one, the one mediator between people and, and God, who is Jesus Christ. It would mean that uh, Jesus' death and resurrection would be, would be of no purpose or, or would be meaningless for half of the human population it would mean that all that Paul says about salvation being readily available for everyone who accepts it through Jesus is not true. Paul, Paul simply, he can't be saying that eternal salvation for women depends on their ability to bear children. That, that simply from the rest of scripture, we can't make, that is not a reasonable reading of, of 1 Timothy 2.15 to say that Paul, that a woman's eternal salvation is dependent on her having children. He's human. He's human. And, and he's writing again to like a context that we have, we have so little access to. Mm -hmm. our, our access is through his own writings. And so, again, maybe there was like a known thought about, about how childbearing and pain in childbearing related to and it would be so enlightening to have the other side of the correspondence. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Paul talks about this universally available salvation in the first half of the chapter, and I think we're all ready to move back to the first Let's half of the chapter. Let's move to the good stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just jump back in and, and go from the beginning. Verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peacefully and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. So the Apostle Paul encourages people to pray, Christians to pray for, for everyone. Uh, and he, he talks about how to pray for everyone. And then he clarifies when he, he says everyone, he says, pray for kings and for, pray for people in authority. And he gives a selfish reason that we would pray for kings and people in authority, right? The selfish reason that we would pray for kings and people in authority is so that we would have peace. You know, that's kind of like a selfish motivation. Let's pray for the king to just stay in power so that there's not a war, so that we can just kind of have peace around here. But when we consider what kings and people in authority were in relationship to Christians in those days, this is kind of a radical message. Because kings and anybody in authority in the time that Paul was writing, if, 
they were at best ignorant of Christianity, and if they knew anything about Christians, they didn't like them. They, they were actively trying to suppress the movement of Christianity and the, ex, the expansion of Christianity through the Roman Empire. And so I see this really as Paul's direct application of Jesus' instructions to pray for those who persecute you. Paul, Paul says, pray for the, the people who are at the very top, who are, who are trying to squish Christianity, squash Christianity and get it out of the world um, because we ought, to be, we ought to be praying for even, even our, our enemies. And the, the direct application of, of that teaching means that we'll have peaceful and quiet lives, but, but really we'll have lives that are marked by godliness and dignity. When we're able to pray for those who persecute us, we have godly lives and, and uh, we can live in dignity. You want to go ahead and read uh, the rest of the sure. passage here for us, verses 3 through 6. It says, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. So this passage makes it sound like maybe there's even more than just a selfish reason for praying for kings and and those who are in authority. But this radical message of the gospel is available even for those, like there is hope for those who are persecuting the church. Paul has already written about how he persecuted the church, and now he's been appointed an apostle of the church. Paul, Paul says this, this good news, this is available for everyone. Jesus is mediator between God and humanity. All, all of humanity has, the, has access to God through, through Jesus, and, and, and everyone can be saved. Everyone can understand the truth. Everyone can come to God through Jesus. And so God sent Jesus to call people to himself. He is the mediator. He is the one who, you know, Jesus said in his own, his own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Paul just affirming, affirming that, pray for everyone so everyone will know the one mediator who is Jesus. And, and uh I'm going to skip just a little bit. So we're getting a little short on time here. Go ahead. I love that. How, how you've done this, having us read the whole thing, read the second part, the tough part, and then go back to the first part because it really does highlight uh, just those last few lines about uh, there's one God, one mediator, um, and, and freedom for everyone really highlights digging into the context versus just reading the verses at face value, yeah. uh, even within the same chapter. Uh, because as he talks about that and the beginning, it's important to read that beginning part to read the second part to say uh, he, he wants to be clear. There is one God, one mediator, it's Jesus, and Jesus died to purchase freedom for every person, not just half the population, and not an unequal level of freedom for the population, Amen. but an equity and equality that is one for all. Yeah. Um, one sacrifice for all. Yeah. Uh, and I look at that, I combine it with um, 
He created them in his image, male and female. He created them. Uh, we're, we're, we're the same, even though we're different. Um, that just lends so much to reading this tough section of Scripture. And we read it in that light with all the other context of, of Scripture and the intent that God has an overarching story of his great love for us. Uh, and we look at Paul, just his short arc in the story of how he wrote so many other things. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier to read that now and to say, there's other stuff going on. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's just like what's going on here, you know, in our world right now. We've got stuff going on in the church. Uh, and we probably always will because we're human, humans within a church. So, yeah. Paul ends with just a quick repeating of his credentials. He's not exaggerating. He's just, you know, I meant, I talked about how he was so humble by the time he gets to the end of his life last week. And then he repeats his credentials one more time. But again, not exaggerating, just pointing it out. Uh, Paul, there, there's a little bit of an implicit contrast here between Paul talking about himself as, a, as a, uh, an apostle and spreading the gospel and, and then the one mediator between God and people who is Jesus Christ. The, there is one person, there is one, one mediator who saves all of humanity, who is Jesus. Jesus has given the work of the church, to the church of telling the world about that one mediator. As humans, we don't save anyone. But without the church telling people about the one mediator, without the church discipling believers to, to look like the one mediator. Without the church anticipating the work of the one mediator in the world, there is no salvation for the world. The, Jesus has chosen the church to, to spread this message. And so we aren't the mediators between God and people, but the mediator needs us as his hands and feet in this world, praying for everyone and actively doing the work of sharing the good news about Jesus, being people of hope everywhere we go. So today we're going to end our service remembering the work of Jesus to bridge the divide between God and, and humanity. We're going to take the meal of communion. Uh, we, uh, we're going to remember, as, communion reminds us so much of the work that Jesus did uh, while he was on earth, the work of teaching and the work of, of going to the cross it, but it also reminds us of the work that Jesus left for us to do, the work of accepting his grace, the, the work of, of spreading his fame, and the work we have of waiting in anticipation with hope for Jesus' coming again. So let me remind you that communion was instituted by Jesus. Uh, this is a sacrament which proclaims his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and the truth that he will come again. It shows forth his death until his return. This is a means of grace. We believe that Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is present when we take these elements by faith. And so, in our church, we invite everyone who repents of their sins and wants to know Jesus to take the elements and, and to receive from Jesus in, in this meal to participate in his death and in his resurrection. And we come to the table to be renewed spiritually, but we also come to the table to be unified. We come as one body 
one body. We come as one body, First Naz, Lewiston Church here, but we come as one body with our brothers and sisters around the world who receive this meal by faith. There's a confession, an ancient confession of our faith. It's, it's just three fa- phrases. It says, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Would you repeat those three phrases with me just as a confession of our faith? Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God of all mercy, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your good work through Jesus to save us, to bring us wholeness and hope, and to to give us new life, unlike any type of life we might have without Jesus. We remember that you sent Jesus to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, He fed the hungry, he ate with sinners, and he established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again. And so we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And likewise, after the meal was over, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and drink. This is the cup of the new covenant, which is made in my blood, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so, God, as we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. May make them by the power of your spirit to be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world. Until Jesus comes again in final victory, we thank you. We come in faith praying in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the First Mass Podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person at 1700 8th Street in Lewiston. Come join us.